Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Today's message, uh, I guess, has to be short. Rainy uh, came in, I guess it was, was it this morning or last night, when she said, Dad, how long is your sermon? Because I'm really excited. We haven't had a church meal or a picnic in a long time, and I'm just thinking about particular foods that people bring, and I'm so excited about trying them, so please don't preach long. So, out of uh, respect to my daughter, praise the worship team, come on up here. (laughs) Open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 13. We're going to read a little bit about Barnabas and Paul, or hear a little bit about uh, the the fallout of when Barnabas and Paul were preaching in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. And Paul's message was very well received. The synagogue, of course, he's preaching to the Jews there. And they, they liked it. And many of the um, uh, proselytes and dedicated Jews began to follow Paul but also the Gentiles, whether they were listening at the walls or heard about it, they begged. They didn't just kind of express casual interest. They said, would you come back and next week uh, preach to us? So the next week, practically the whole city came out, and many of the Gentiles believed, but the Jews, which had received Paul and Barnabas so well the week before, suddenly became very jealous. And they began condemning Paul and Barnabas, uh, calling them heretics, refuting and contradicting and combating everything that they were preaching. All because it was good news to the Gentiles and not just them. I was telling a story in our small group. Our small group is, uh, I love our small group. Uh, it because we, and, and what we are doing, basically, is having Christian conversation. We had two hours of Christian conversation, and it just took so many d- different turns, and we had a good time of prayer. Uh, but I was telling the story of a speaker, and I won't name him here, and this was years ago. Uh, Dad, Pastor Larry, had invited a speaker whose specialty was on creation and the flood. Uh, he was a young earth creationist, and... Uh, when he called about booking a meeting or when, or when uh, dad reached out to him, I can't remember how it started, the guy said, well, I've got two different programs. One is a two, I think it's a two-night deal, and the other is a five-night, and I can do either one. And dad said, well, just kind of dipping our toe in the water here. Why don't we just do the two-night, and we'll see how it goes. Well, it was very well received. People really loved it. They wanted more. So before the guy even left, dad said, let's book you down the road. Let's pick a date and have you in for the whole thing, for the five-night deal. I don't know how many of you were around for this. How many of you remember who I'm talking about? Uh, so, and I don't know how many months down the road it was. It was in the future quite a ways. And then this guy, about two weeks before he was supposed to come in, he calls and talks to Dad and said, hey, just wanted to give you a heads up. When I'm there in a couple weeks, I will have some negative things to say about churches like yours. He says, what do you mean? He says, well, specifically uh, tongues. He knew that we were a church that embraced the gifts of the Spirit, including 
and, and in this case particularly, praying in tongues, which is separate from the gift of the Spirit, but you, you guys know what I'm talking about. He, says, you, because, he said, because you speak in tongues, I have to address this. And Dad says, what are you talking about? You're in here to talk about the flood and creation and the age of the earth and dinosaurs and everything else. What does that have to do? He said, I don't care. Dad said, I don't care if you don't believe in it. We can disagree about that and still you know, break bread and, and receive from your ministry. No, uh, it's part of my five-day presentation. Dad's like, so leave it out. He, well, I can't. It's kind of central. And Dad said, I cannot begin to imagine how that fit, fits in to the creation narrative. Uh, but um, if you can't explain it to me, then we'll just, we'll just have to let it go. And the guy says, well, so do you still want me in or not? Well, no, I'm not going to invite you into my church to have you come in and slam our church. Finally, he, lets, he, he expresses, here was the problem he had with it. He was correct about this, that uh, the charismatic renewal of the 70s, 60s and 70s, but 70s in particular, swept, it was a cross-denominational manifestation of the goodness of God and a resurgence of the gifts. It wasn't the only time this had happened, but I mean, you had, I mean, official, um, I won't say clubs, but classes and branches and auxiliaries of like, the, uh, you had, a, a, this wasn't a secret underground thing. There was a charismatic Methodist, full gospel Methodist, Lutherans, and Baptists, tongue-talking Baptists, and Catholics. There were charismatic Catholics. This was his problem. He said any movement that embraces Catholicism or Catholics in any form is of the devil. If Catholics speak, this was his twisted logic, if Catholics speak in tongues, then tongues is wrong. Because this was his, now listen, don't get me wrong, I have issues with particular, particular uh, doctrines of Catholicism. There are things that kind of make my head go tilt. Like, how can you believe the Bible and believe this? But I do know, strange as it seems, even with some of these uh, uh, things that I, that I radically disagree with, I know Catholics who I believe are born again. But whether they are or not, I mean, th this is, why couldn't you just, uh, there's so many different ways he could have gone about that. But his hatred and his stridency his strident anti-Catholic stance, he, it was so prevalent that he had to wedge it into everything and reject us. It's like, well, you're going to come and share this with a church who you are basically, oh, I, I don't, don't be blinded by this kind of hatred. If it blesses you and I don't like you, then I don't want any part of it. This is what the Jews were doing. This was a good message until it started including those people, and if it includes those people, it's a bad message. You see? Where am I going with this? I don't know yet. We'll all find out together. <laughs> In this case, here's what I want you to see. In this case, Paul and Barnabas just told them, look, we did what we were supposed to do. We came and we shared this message with you first. Now, you've rejected it, and in doing so, you are condemning yourself. So God is sending us to preach this message to the Gentiles from now on. Let's pick it up in verse 48. Acts 13, 
48. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and came to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now this is a pretty big deal. Getting kicked out of the city. You know, it's one of those things, again, we can read it in a verse of Scripture here and think, well, that's the way it went. Can you imagine? Scheduling a meeting, and not only being disinvited by the church that you scheduled it with, but being kicked out of the city? This is happening today, by the way. Here in America, I can, Sean Foyt in the, in, out there in, uh, where was he, Portland? This isn't, listen, this isn't a deep message today. We did, we did uh, five or six weeks of deep on the, on the armor of God. Today's picnic day. Uh, this is a message of encouragement. This is a message of hope. And uh, uh, I don't want to bring us down thinking about, oh my goodness, they're going to kick us out of the city one day. I just want you to see this. What was the outcome? They got kicked out of the city. It was a very public spectacle. And they went on to Iconium filled with the Holy Spirit and with what? Joy. Where does the joy come from in a moment like this? There is a time to weep. There is a time to mourn. Even in times of mourning and weeping, we know that we don't grieve as those who have no hope. There's something different about us. There, uh, at least there, there should be something different about us because if, listen to this, this is a central truth of this message. If you are in Christ, joy is in you. I'll prove that in a minute. You say, but I'm in Christ and I'm not joyful. Joy is in you, I promise. David, King David, who wrote many of the Psalms, as you probably know, because I know a lot of you have a pretty healthy devotional life, and if you do, that typically means you spend a pretty healthy amount of time in the Psalms. I think you should. He wrote a lot of these Psalms from a place of great personal need, uh, crisis even. He was being pursued by his enemies. It was, a, it was really a common theme. And in Psalm 27, here are some things he prays in Psalm 27. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn away from me in anger. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. Now this, these are prayers of almost desperation. He is recounting the things that are going wrong in his life, and there's almost a sense of begging. But before he says any of those things, look what he says. In Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. 
this is how he prefaces his prayer. This is who God is. This is how great his salvation is. This is what he's done for me. This is what he's promised me. Then says, then lays out his supplication, the things he's asking for. He doesn't lead with the, oh God, I'm in trouble. Help me, don't abandon me. Now, when it says sacrifices of joy, we've talked about this before, especially when we did, uh, I don't know how long it's been now, but we did a series on praise and worship. We've done several over the years. But when it talks about bringing the sacrifice of praise, there is one sense when, when we compare that to the Old Testament sacrifice. The Old Testament Jew was instructed by the law to live certain ways. There were certain, obviously, there were sins that were spelled out, hundreds of them. And there were things they were supposed to do, spelled out. Uh, and then, but, but a, and this was to be their lifestyle of worship. This is what is supposed to distinguish you as a people. You live this way because you believe this way. But there was also the formal aspect of their worship, which included the sacrifice. Which is what makes it interesting when God says, here's how you bring the sacrifice. And many of them were sin offerings, but some of them were praise offerings, wave offerings, all these things. But there was a right and wrong way to do it. You, didn't, you couldn't just bring your offering and do whatever. God says, when it's, a, when it's a time, this time of day, this time of year, you bring this sacrifice and you offer it this way. And they were, for a while, they were pretty good about doing this. And yet then when God would say, those sacrifices, those things, those burnt offerings you're offering me, they stink. They're supposed to be this perfume in my nostrils, but they reek. Why? Because you're not backing them up with the way you're living. Get your life right first, then bring these sacrifices. And our praise can kind of be seen the same way. When we come to praise God, it should be out of a life that is dedicated to him and living for him. That is a separate sermon. I'm not trying to skip over it. It's just that I'm going a different way with it today. The other way it is a sacrifice of praise as you know is when it's time for praise and worship we come in here to sing and no matter how good the band is that day no matter how good the songs are that day sometimes you've had a week sometimes you've just had a morning that makes it hard and so you say to yourself it would be hypocritical of me to raise my hands and sing these joyous songs to the lord because i'm just not feeling it and god's saying i ain't asking you to feel a certain way i'm asking you am i worthy of your praise you might not feel like bringing it. You might not feel the joy, but I'm worthy of those praises, so give it to me anyway. In that sense, it is a sacrifice of praise. I'm gonna, this is, it's hard for me to do this, hard for me to raise my hand, hard for me to sing, hard for me to smile, but I'm going to do it because he is God and worthy of these praises. And this is closely related to this concept with joy. When David talks about offering sacrifices of joy, he spends more time celebrating God's goodness, focusing on his desire for God's presence than he does pouring out his supplications and focusing on his problems. And not only does he spend more time there, again, he starts there. We should do the same thing. Let's move on here. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested after healing the lame men and preaching Jesus. And they were severely threatened by the Jewish leadership, as you know. They were forbidden to preach Christ. And then they return to their own company and they report what the elders and chief priests said. And then they all prayed. And what did they pray? What's the verse 24 say? When they, so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. You see where they started? Remembering who God is. 
how big he is. This is the creator we're talking about. Then go down to verse 29, and it says, Now, Lord, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word, and, and so on. They didn't start with the, They didn't run back to their own company and say, Oh, Lord, help us. They're threatening us. They told us we can't preach your name. What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to run away? Are we supposed to stay? Help us, help us, help us. No, they said, Lord, you are God, creator of heaven and earth. Now, look on their threats and grant us boldness that we can continue to do the things you've already told us to do. Keeping our eyes on God and his bigness, his kindness, his love will enable us uh, to keep a proper perspective on all that's going on around us and make it possible for us to be joyful in the middle of it. And this is super important when it comes to preaching the gospel. I've talked about it before. I've mentioned certain people before. Some of them famous, like Eeyore. Remember Eeyore? What's, uh, what's a word you would attach to Eeyore? Eeyore? Joyful? How about depressed? Downer? You know, you got Eeyore on one end of the spectrum and, and Tigger on the other, right? Be a Tigger for Jesus. That's, that's my message today. No, no, no. Uh, Schlepprock from the old Pebbles and Bam Bam show was always my favorite, you know. Everybody remember Schlepprock? Wasn't a super famous cartoon character, but I always loved him because he always had this rain cloud over his head, and there'd be a party going on, and there's Schlepprock, wowsy, wowsy, woo, woo. That was his thing. And there's a guy who, in my mind, I won't tell a story about him because it hits a little too close to home, but every time I meet him, every time I see him in public, I just, I've called him Schlepprock to his face because that's what he, who he reminds me of. And he's a believer. I'm like, man, I want you to go to heaven. I want you to believe, but until you get over this, don't preach the gospel because I don't want people associating Jesus with you. You want what I have? Let me tell you about Jesus. There was a guy, a very well-known preacher on the quad uh, back in my college days and before, so like at least 15 years ago. Uh, and, and his name was Max. I don't know if any of you remember Mad Max the Preacher uh, on campus, but he was a hellfire and damnation preacher. The one thing you got to give the guy is he was bold. And, but he would draw a crowd, but it wasn't a crowd that was coming to hear the good news. It was a crowd that would gather around him for entertainment because he would live uh, his whole message. Now, I heard him a handful of times, and I never stuck around very long because I remember standing there one time thinking, what if he turns around uh, suddenly says, can I get a witness who here believes in Jesus Christ? Well, I don't want to deny Christ, but I don't want to identify with this guy because he would stand there and just blast everything wrong with college, college students, big time uh, against fraternities and sororities and he would just talk about you're going to hell because of this because of what you're wearing because of what you're eating what you're drinking what you're doing with your free time and man they would just they would throw these things at him uh, hey max what do you think about fraternities fraternities and sororities are hotbeds of fornication well but i belong to a fraternity max what's going to happen to me you're going to burn where are we going to burn max in fire this was his big exclamation. I'm not exaggerating. Does, has anybody seen this guy besides me? Anybody seen? Yeah. It was fun. E. He just, it, but it was sad at the same time. Where, and, the, and then of course, 
the, you've got the sad case of uh, the Westboro clowns who just carry signs that in their mind are based on scriptural truths. But the message is what? One of, here's what God hates, here's who God hates. What is it about any of this that is going to draw me into the saving relationship with God that I need? I'll give you an example from me. And this is, uh, hopefully, it didn't get too out of hand. Uh, but my sisters will testify this. Jeff was in the middle of this too. There was a, a, a seminar that I attended uh, with a youth group. I saw it twice. I think, uh, I don't know if both times were in Illinois or if one was, I think one was like down in Broken Arrow and then the same guy came up here. Uh, but it was, a, it was all about the evils of rock and roll. It was about a two hour, maybe two and a half hour seminar. Uh, I could tell you who did it. I'm not going to. But it was the first time I had ever heard of, and many of you have, I'm sure, of backward masking, back masking, the, right? The, um, uh, what do you call it? The sub subliminal stuff. And this guy played song after song, clip after clip of songs. He'd give you the usual, here's what this band was into. This band called themselves this because they took this drug or they met this demon or whatever, and it was riveting. This guy was organized. He had all this stuff laid out. And then he starts playing snippets of songs. He'd play you the part forward, then he'd play it backward, and lo and behold, there was a satanic message. The most famous one. <laughs> I know, you've, you've, you've heard me say this before, but the part of Stairway to Heaven, where it says, uh, <laughs> uh, what's the part about the whispering wind? Your something lies on the whispering wind. Something lies on the whispering wind. You stop it there and play it back, and it goes, I will sing because I live with Satan. <laughs> I will sing because I live with Satan. And there's another part that says, the one who makes me sad will make me sad, whose power is Satan. And it's like, now it sounds a little weird, but how is this getting in here? And this guy, then he, and he played other clips, other songs, and, and it's like, oh, well, that's so creepy. He said, here's what they've shown, though. Psychologists have proven that even though you don't hear this when it's played forward, your mind is so sharp, it absorbs this message. It gets stuck in there. And there you've got this demonic influence. There's this message swirling around. Here's to my sweet Satan. I will sing because I live with Satan. And you're like, oh no. Now, let me fast forward to something to get it out of the way. Then I'll come back and, and show you how this hurt my ministry. Number one, that's bull. That's not true. Psychologists have pretty well proven that that's not how subliminal advertising works, that these backward masking things are not, they are not captured by your brain. They do not become portals uh, to anything. They're not picked up on. They're curiosities, and we might legitimately be curious how'd that get in there. But that's not the danger of rock and roll. You know what the danger of a lot of rock and roll is? What the lyrics say forward. Okay? But I'll tell you what happened. Two things, not, not the only two things that happened, but two things that happened as a result of our very public stance against rock music. One is, I missed a lot of great music. I did. Two is, we became, I became known probably more for the fact that 
we didn't listen to certain kinds of music than I did for here's how much I love Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly, just that little tape of that seminar opened a lot of doors. We ended up being able to talk to a lot of people about Jesus just because of how interesting this message was. But the message itself mostly turned out to be false. But it led to a lot of record burning and things like this. Now, I, listen, I know there are satanic bands out there. A lot of them just used it as kind of a gimmick. But again, you don't play around with stuff like that. I'm a firm believer. You don't mess around with it even if it's a game to you. It's not a game to the devil. He's real. But that wasn't the issue. Here was the other big thing of how it hurt me. I got fearful. I spent at least a year believing that I'm hearing secular music on the radio. I don't know what's in that thing backwards. I don't, therefore, I don't know what's getting in my brain and what's ready to attack me. We'd come in just to the locker room after PE and somebody would have uh, a secular radio station going on and I'm just, I'm just trying to keep my fingers in my ears and pray in tongues. That's no way to go through life. Where was my joy? And that should have been a clue. If th this truth, there's no joy, there's no peace in this, is it true? And that doesn't mean that everything, every manifestation of, of, of our life and experience with God is going to be easy and happy and, you know, sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. But there was something deeper here. And it was keeping people, it, it made people just roll their eyes, and I thought, well, I can put up with the eye rolling for Jesus. Well, it wasn't really. I should have been, uh, I should have been led by somebody, uh, I should have been led by my own study, but I wish I had come across people who could have explained the way more fully scripturally. What ultimately this was, was sensationalism. It was a, it was a good gig for this minister. Any, anyway, like I said, probably the bigger issue is we at least risked being known more for what we were against than what we embraced. What we condemned rather than what we affirmed. I listened uh, a little bit, uh, just yesterday as a matter of fact, to a little bit of an interview with Francis Chan. And he was talking about how a guy, and, and I've, I was doing this, I listened to him while I was mowing the lawn, and so I missed, I, I, there's some of it I just couldn't hear. I don't remember the guy's name, but I gathered just from this brief part of the interview that this is somebody who's fairly well known now. I believe he's in ministry, but I could, I could have that wrong. But anyway, he was, he was a gay man who had a powerful encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, surrendered his life to Christ, and immediately wanted to share his salvation testimony and so he was telling his brother a friend a roommate i don't know but he was saying i have met jesus i met him he lives in me now this is this is so great i'm, I'm a, I, I believe in god i'm so excited about come, getting to know god better blah blah and this guy the first thing he said was you know what that means you're going to have to stop sleeping with men now and this guy said are you serious you want to talk about sex I just told you I met the creator of the universe and you want to talk about this? Do you see this? If we lead with, I've got something to share with you. Your lifestyle is all wrong and it's displeasing to God and you're going to burn in hell unless you change. That's like, that's not how you catch fish, is it? When I've shared, many of you have seen, the, seen and heard the same stories I have now, but these uh, multiplied encounters that are happening, it seems especially uh, frequently in the Muslim world, where a devout Muslim will pray an honest prayer, God, I want to know who you really are. I want to meet the true God. 
and they will have a vision or a dream where Jesus himself appears to them, introduces himself. And they know it's Jesus. But do you think this Jesus appears to them? I'm going to kill you because you believe in the wrong God. You believe in the wrong Bible. No. They meet this Jesus who is full of love and light and truth. We talked about the sword of the Spirit and how it doesn't always need to be swung as a sword, right? But used as a scalpel. And the word of the Lord is not always just a sword. We sow seed. We feed people with the word. That's what, and this, it's all about how truth is presented and in what moment, okay? This, there should be something in us when we live the gospel and preach the gospel. I believe one of the things that people desperately need to see in order to respond to the truth of the gospel is joy. It's joy, and it's hard to manifest joy when your words are full of condemnation and hate. Listen to me and listen to what I'm not saying. We don't manifest the joy and the truth of the Lord by affirming bad decisions, sinful lifestyles. I'm saying we don't lead with that. We lead with the love of God. We lead with Jesus Christ himself. Remember, this is a relationship. We always talk, well, this, is a, this is not a religion, it's a relationship. But then we go out and preach, and our preaching sounds religious rather than like, I want you to meet somebody. He changed my life. I believe he'll change yours if you'll meet him like I met him. And trust God to do the straightening out. And maybe remember how much straightening out you had to go through when you met Jesus. Quickly now. In Galatians chapter 5, we read that the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is those things. It's not like, well, my fruit of the Spirit is love, not joy. No, the fruit of the Spirit is all of these things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Joy is in there. Um, that's what I mean when I say if you are in Christ, joy is in you. Like when James tells us to count it all joy when you encounter trials because the trying of your faith produces patience. Also, part of the fruit of the Spirit. And what's that word produces? The Greek word, anybody remember? Kater. Katergatsamai. The trying of your faith, katergatsamai's patience. Doesn't mean, when it says produces patience, it doesn't bring patience from the outside and put it in you. It brings the patience that is in you out. Once again, best illustration of this is an apple tree. An apple tree is not an apple tree because it produces apples. It produces apples because it is, by nature, an apple tree. Your Christ-like nature, your spirit man, has these attributes because Christ himself dwells in you. You have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And there are things like when James is talking about, these trials come along, that's for you to cultivate patience and cause it to bear fruit in your life. And there are things we need to cultivate in our life so that the fruit of joy 
blooms in abundance. Maybe some, some uh, changes we need to make. And uh, Alex or whoever, this is probably the time you want to head out and start. You said you needed a heads up to park, uh, start putting cold stuff out. Maybe, you, maybe they already left. But I'm getting ready to wrap up. When, uh, when it says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, this is the same word. Salvation is in you. It's not a matter of achieving your salvation or working for your salvation in Philippians. It's the salvation that's in you. Let it cotter God semai. Do the things you need to do so that that salvation works its way to the outside in terms of your behavior, your speech, uh, your being transformed into the image of Christ. And this is when we go back to the helmet of salvation. What are we dwelling on? When I think about the Lord, when I think about his word, when I think about his promise, when I think about his sufferings, when I think about his power, his resurrection, these things train my mind to think a certain way. I am going to be much, much more likely to manifest the fruit of joy in my life. Joy, it's very difficult for joy and fear to occupy the same place. If, and, and they can't be. If I'm, it really often depends on what I am dwelling on, what I am thinking about. Let me try to squeeze this in here. There's another bad habit that I've noticed over the last couple of years where people will take a famous passage or verse of Scripture uh, and one great example is uh, around graduation time, uh, a lot of cards will say, will have, uh, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to give you hope in the future. Uh, and, and there are people who will say, this is such a bad application of this scripture. Don't the people who quote this scripture know that Jeremiah was preparing his people to go into captivity? And they're just, uh, it's, it's a little bit... Uh, pretentious I think people are just trying to show I know the context of this verse when Jeremiah said I know the plans that I have for you says the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you uh, that he was talking about even though they're going into Babylon God's going to bring them out of there someday and he's going to protect them in Babylon okay so when people say something like this that's He's not talking about, hey, you've graduated high school and God has plans to give you a hope in the future. So I just say this. Uh, does God know the plans he has for me? Irrespective of this verse and its context. Does God know the plans he has for me? Yes, he does. Are God's plans for me good plans? Yes. Okay. Why can't I speak that scripture over myself? Why can't I speak it over my children, my graduates, etc.? Does God have plans to prosper me and not to harm me? Does he have plans to give me hope in the future? You bet he does. All right? It's not that this verse was only, this truth was only spoken in this particular context to these particular people. It was a, about God. It was, an, it was an objective truth about God's attitude and plans for his people applied in that moment. Another famous one. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, at last, your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am, in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need, 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so uh, these people will say, well, look at these athletes who've got uh, Philippians 4.13 uh, tattooed or written in their eye black or something like that or on their shoes. Uh, this is not what Philippians 4.13 is talking about. He's not talking about giving you success on the sports field. He's not talking about give you, giving you success in life in general. He's talking about being content with nothing. Two problems with that. Paul's not just talking about being content with nothing. He's talking about being content with nothing or with everything. He's talking about his contentment not depending on his circumstances. He's received an offering, and he's saying, I'm glad you finally had a chance to express your concern for me with this offering, but I'm telling you, I'm not just thanking you because I desperately needed it. I've learned to trust, trust God, and I can find contentment in his presence, whether I've got my hands on, on this or whether I'm lacking this. My contentment is from God. That's my source of contentment. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Again, he's not just saying the only application of this truth is so that you can get by with nothing. It's because of the universal truth, the objective truth, that nothing is impossible with God. Therefore, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Therefore, I can be content in all circumstances. Now, does that mean? Obviously, that, that verse can be thrown away, a, thrown a little too far. I prayed for Spider-Man powers when I was 13, 14 years old because I can do all things through Christ. Why can't I have these things? Because there's not a verse I could stand on. There's not a promise I could stand on. But anything that he has called me to do and positioned me to do, uh, he has graced me to do and empowered me to do. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, my question for you. Praise and worship team, you can be coming up here. This is kind of an abrupt ending to this message, but I'm ending it here because I'm hungry. No, I can hear my daughter's stomach growling from here. This contentment in all circumstances. Listen, there are some, mentioned it at the beginning of the service, there are some crazy, distressing things happening in the world today. Right here in America, right here in Illinois, even right here in St. Joe. If you want to be uh, discouraged, frustrated, depressed, uh, set up an appointment, appointment with me this week and I'll supply you with ammunition and everything you need to get. Uh, it's not where I'm at, but I can point you in the, in the wrong direction if you know what I mean. But that's not where we're supposed to be. We're supposed to what? Hide from these things? No. Right back where we started. Paul's talking about being content in lack or in abundance. We can be content whether the, good, whether the news is good news or bad news, whether Christianity is being celebrated or whether Christianity is being attacked, where, where is our contentment? In Christ himself. When people want to talk about the particulars, ah, here's the problem with Christianity. Oh, wait, 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 let's back up and talk about Christ. And let's remember that this is where our hope is, this is where our courage comes from. This is where our contentment comes from. What did David say? One thing that I want. I want to see your face. I want to dwell in your house. Did David have other ambitions? He did. But compared to the joy of dwelling with and knowing, knowing God, 
Everything else was a distant second. Stand up with me. Do you want this kind of contentment in your life? Because it is absolutely available to everyone. Everyone. But it is only found in Christ. If you are in Christ, joy is in you. If you are not in Christ, you may experience moments of joy, but it's not necessarily part of your nature. What Paul was writing about, what Peter wrote so eloquently about, is this stability that is the mark of Christianity. And running a thick line through that stability is joy. It's part of our character as members of the body of Christ. Joy isn't the only thing he offers. There's all the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. And there is the security of knowing that you are part of God's family and that your eternal destiny is sewn up. It's secure. We are bound for heaven when this mess is over. Do you want that assurance? Do you want that contentment? If you do, today's your day. I'm going to pray something here real quick. Heavenly Father, thank you for, again for this day. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the fruit of the Spirit. And thank you particularly right now for joy. It's my prayer, and I know it's the prayer of every believer in this room, that if there is, if there is even one person in the sound of my voice who has not confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, that you would convict them of their need for a Savior, convict them of sin, reveal yourself for who you are, do what only you can do, and draw the sinner to salvation, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website, at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.